The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. The year was 1870, and a man named Henry Lum got on his sailboat with his 15-year-old son and sailed up from Key West along the Keys and got to the mainland of Florida, and he saw this island that was just basically a jungle. He, he described it as just being full of weeds and mosquitoes. But he saw a couple coconut palm trees growing on this island. And an idea struck him. What if this island could be used as like a coconut plantation? What if I could actually grow coconut palm trees there? And so he inquired about it and, and inquired about buying some acre, acres there. And he bought a huge portion of acreage right there on what we know now to be Miami Beach. But that was the first acreage purchased on that island, Miami Beach. And he bought it from the U.S. government for 35 cents an acre. Now that's quite an investment. That means that he could have bought, at that rate, he could have bought the entire island, all of Miami Beach, for $1,700. Now you say, okay, all right, I hear you, but this is, you know, 1870. I mean, that's got to be way more money now. So I, I brought in the big guns. Some of you know Michael, our administrator. I said, okay, man, what would that be, calculating inflation? And, and he did some research, and you're right. It would be a lot more if you were to buy it at the same rate today. You could buy at the same rate the entire island of Miami Beach. That would be buying it at $34,000. Still a pretty good investment, I'd say. And I was curious, okay, like what would that mean like in today's terms? Like if this guy, Henry Lum, had held on to it and just passed it down through his descendants for the last 150 years and they were to like resell like the acreage of Miami Beach, like what kind of profit would they make? And so I was like, man, are there even any like empty lots like on Miami Beach that are vacant? And there's not many. But I found one doing a little research online. Okay, so if you're interested in an empty lot on Miami Beach, okay, here's one in a residential area right here. Go ahead and pull up that picture. Yeah, there, there you go. So an empty lot right there, no buildings on it. If you're potentially interested, that is selling at just under $1.3 million. But I need to warn you, it's not a full acre, okay? In fact, it's not even a fifth of an acre, okay? So, in other words, at that rate today, a full acre would be going for 7.5 million an acre. So, I was thinking about this. Like, some of you are like, I'm not a math person and it's Sunday. I don't do math on Sunday. Okay, just stay with me for a second. Okay, I, so I, I asked Michael, help me with this. Okay, what would that be with inflation today? What kind of profit would he make? Okay, and if he had held on to it at the rate he did, adjusting with inflation, he would have made, by selling it today, a 100 million percent return on that investment. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. For him to be able to be on the ground level to make that kind of investment, I mean, to get that kind of return, you've got to be on the ground level, 
right? And to be on the ground level, there's a certain type of vision that you have to have. You've got to see an island that's all like weeds and mosquitoes, and you have to see what other people don't see. You have to have a certain type of vision. You have to believe in what's not yet there because before it looked like what we know it to look like, it looked something like this a couple of decades later. Um, this is when they were clearing Miami Beach for Lincoln Road. That's Lincoln Road right there when they're clearing for it. I mean, that's just jungle. And to be able to get in on the ground level, you have to have a certain type of vision. You anticipate, you see what others don't. You're, you're seeing what, what could be and what will be, but has not yet happened. And so that's what we're talking about today, that type of vision. We're, we've been looking in the book of Haggai. If you would go ahead and open in your Bible or Bible app to the book of Haggai, we're going to be looking at chapter 2, Haggai chapter 2. But let me give you the backstory. This story takes place a few hundred years after the time of like King David and Solomon. There have been all these kings, and they had gotten farther and farther away from God. To the point, they were so far from God that God had taken his hand of protection off of them and uh, Babylon had marched on the nation of Judah and had destroyed Jerusalem, knocked down the walls, destroyed their houses, and of all horrors had even destroyed the temple, took all the people of Jerusalem and took them back to Babylon. They were exiles in Babylon. And a little over a generation had passed, the Persians had come into power, and they sent these people back to Jerusalem. So most of the people returning back to Jerusalem were born in captivity. Most of them had probably never even been to Jerusalem before, except for a few that were old enough to have survived it. And they get back to Jerusalem, and what happens is they see it's just all rubble, it's in ruins, and following the leadership of a guy named Ezra, they lay the foundation of the temple. And they were about to rebuild the temple, but they laid the foundation and the building of the temple halted and years started to go by and they got distracted. And they're rebuilding their homes and their businesses, but the temple was left just a foundation. And God was going to speak to his people. God was not okay with that. Here's what he said through Haggai. I, I want to just look at Chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, before we jump into chapter 2, here's what he said. This is from last week. <clears throat> God says, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So God's words. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. It's a pretty strong words. That Haggai is communi communicating for, for God. God's speaking through Haggai. And Haggai's communicating these words where God's basically saying, look, you've got your paneled houses. That's like an ancient way of describing um, luxury. He says, you're building your luxurious houses. He says, you're rebuilding your, your kingdoms, your houses. You're, you're rebuilding your, your businesses. You're rebuilding your houses. But my house lies in ruins, the temple. He says, man, this is unthinkable. I mean, the temple is what, where the presence of God dwells. It's what houses the presence of God there in the city. The presence of God, which makes the whole city flourish. He says, you're building your houses, but my house lies in ruins. 
And he goes on through chapter 1. He says, do you think I'm going to be okay with that? And he says, consider your ways. In other words, check your priorities. Now, I mean, imagine being this original audience and hearing that. I mean, these are biting words. I mean, these are really strong words that Haggai um, had to communicate. And what it says in the rest of Haggai chapter 1 is really powerful. It says, they were all stirred. It says not just the leadership, not just the spiritual leadership. Every last person, they were all stirred. And they all just obeyed and got to work. Now, I say that that's beautiful because that is definitely not always the case throughout the Scripture when the Old Testament prophets would speak to God's people. In fact, being a prophet in the Old Testament, man, that was a hard gig. Often you're sharing things that were not popular or uncomfortable. These prophets had to run for their lives sometimes. They were run out of the country Sometimes they're put in prison, sometimes even tortured, sometimes even killed. That's why there's prophets like Jonah when God says, hey, I think I'm going to make you my prophet. He says, actually, I'm going to get on a ship and sail the opposite direction. No, thank you. Which, by the way, didn't go very well for him um, as the story plays out. It was a tough job being a prophet because they had to decide, okay, um, are we gonna, am I going to please God or am I going to please man? They got to decide, who am I more afraid of? Man? Or God. And Haggai was faithful to bring to God's people a, a tough challenge, and all of God's people responded. They considered their ways, they decided what their priorities should be, and they started building. Now, they're about a month into the building, and God's got another word for them. This is really, really powerful. Chapter 2. <clears throat> In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet, now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Did you notice how many times it says in here, uh, do not be afraid? It says, be strong three different times, to everyone, to the governor, to the high priest, to all the people. He says, be strong, be strong. And he tells them why. He says, you can be strong because I am with you. He repeats that over and over. Why does he keep saying this? Because there's something that's threatening them to not be strong. He says, be strong and work. That's the command. There's something that's making them question whether they should work or not. And it was a question he asked. Did you notice? He says, who of you here, he says, this is Haggai speaking on behalf of the Lord, who of you here, Haggai says, who saw the temple in its former glory? He says, there, there's, in other words, there's people who were actually alive and actually old enough to have lived in Jerusalem when the Babylonians came through. They saw Solomon's temple. 
they had told their kids and their grandkids about it. There was a few left, few elderly that had come back from Babylon, back home. They had survived the Babylonian attack. They had survived exile. They had survived the rise of the Persians. They had survived the trip back, and now they're home. And he says, some of you remember Solomon's temple. And there's an interesting thing that's happened here. Let me roll back a couple years. Ezra and God's people have just arrived in Jerusalem, and they've just laid the foundation, and something interesting happens. I'm going to bounce over briefly to Ezra. I want to read you just a few verses. Listen to what happened when they first laid the foundation a few years back. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of, the, of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Can you imagine this for a second? Just, just hang with me in here for just a second. Imagine you had grown up in Babylon. That's all you knew. But your grandparents had talked about the glory of Jerusalem. Had talked about the temple and, and the priests and the whole process and talked about it. You, you just heard of something that where you really felt like you were supposed to belong. And you now hear that the Persian king is sending you back. And so you get to be a part of this wave that goes back. And you see this foundation of the temple laid. Imagine, or, or maybe you're not a child. Maybe you're a grown adult. And for 40, 50, 60 years, you've just heard of the temple. And now you're realizing, I am going to see the temple restored to Jerusalem. And you're standing there looking at this foundation. And then the priests, for the first time, come out in their priestly garb. And they're blowing the trumpet. They've, they've dug up the psalm that David had commanded his son to, to sing when he dedicated the first temple. They dig that up. They're singing. It's this incredible moment. But there's other people who are there too. Listen what, what, they, what happened. Verse 12. But when many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice, when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great joy, and the sound was heard far away. Do you get this? Do you get what's happening here? There's all these people, I can't believe it, I never thought I'd get to see it. I heard my parents talk about it, my grandparents, and they're shouting, oh my goodness, there's the priest and in the vestments, and they're bringing out the trumpets, and we're singing those old, those old songs that even David himself wrote, wrote. Like, what an incredible moment. And there's all of a sudden some of these elderly people that are looking at, at each other who have seen, who saw the original temple, and tears start streaming down their face as they look at the foundation that's been laid because it's not even close. To what Solomon's temple looked like. They're looking at the foundation and it's like this? I mean, we saw the original. It was so much better. And they start wailing. So that the sound of joy and shouting was intermixed with weeping. You almost wonder if that's, that kind of hopelessness is why they weren't very motivated to keep building on that foundation and they got so distracted for so many years because the foundation was so small. 
But God speaks to them. He says, be strong. He says, I know some of you saw the former glory and you look at this and you say, this, he says, I know you think this is nothing. He says, but be strong. And why does he say be strong? He says, be strong because I am with you. And did you notice he reminds them who he is? He says, I am with you, the one who brought you out of Egypt. That's the same one. I was with your forefathers, forefathers, forefathers when you were in slavery in Egypt. I parted the Red Sea. I brought plagues into Egypt. I brought the mighty empire of Egypt to its knees until I had single-handedly released you from slavery. That kind of power that I've demonstrated to you, it's still me. I am with you. You can be strong. And then he says this, verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet, once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former Then the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. In this little section, God refers to himself as the Lord of hosts five times. What does that mean? Jehovah Sabaoth, it's his military title where he's saying, I am the Lord of the armies of heaven. I will do it. Did you notice he says the silver is mine and the gold is mine? He says, I'm not asking you to build because I need your help. It's all mine. I'm not asking you to get involved because I need you. I can do it and I will do it. I'm giving you an opportunity to get involved when it's just a foundation. I'm wanting you to join in the work that I will do, get in on the ground level. I'm asking, he says, I'm giving you an opportunity not because I need it. It's all mine. And then he says this, and I will make This new house, the glory exceed that of the former house. That's a tall order. I don't know if you remember, we talked about it last week. I mean, when Solomon dedicated the temple, he prayed. There's an altar on the sacrifice. He prayed, dedicating the temple. Lightning came from the sky, ignited the altar, and burned up the sacrifice. God's presence so tangibly filled the temple that smoke filled the temple and and every one of the priests ran out for their lives. That's pretty impressive. And he says this new temple is going to exceed the former. So here's what he's essentially saying to him. It's very simple. He says, so work. It's time. Get to work. He says, he says have, be strong. Don't fear. Get to work. You know, church, I, I hear this passage, and I think this has a, a word for us, West Pines, from God. Because there's so many parallels in these two chapters to this moment in our history. Not just the history of this moment of our church, but I think the history of our, of our community. Because here's what we're saying, church. We're saying right now, as a leadership, and then now as a, as a staff, and now as, as leaders in our church, and now as our church, 
there's something that's been stirred in us. It's a vision not just for our city. There's something that's stirred. It's not just for our church. It's a vision for our entire city. But here's the thing, West Pines, you know that this is not just happening at West Pines, right? Do you realize that there are are churches all over South Florida in a way that's never happened before where these leaders are rising up and these spiritual leaders here and this church over here and this church over here and this church over here across denominations are rising up and all saying we are sensing and praying and fasting because we believe God is at work about to do something in our city. And there's this, this stirring up and this boiling where, where these Christians and churches all over are starting to say, what if, what if we saw something, something historic, something that where, the, where the, a fire of the presence of God spread so widely in our city that as people are passing through, they're ignited by this passion overcome by the power of God. What if? But you say, I don't know, man. You talk about seeing South Florida transform. You talk about a work of God here in the city. I mean, but I mean, South Florida is a dark place. And see, we look at the foundation. What are we working with? I mean, we're called to send the presence of God out. We talked last week. The temple we're building now is not a building. This side of Jesus, it's not a building. What the Bible says is you are a temple, Christian. You house the Holy Spirit, the presence of God himself is being housed in you because you've been washed clean by Jesus Christ. You are being sent out as followers of Christ. You are the presence. We are the presence of God in the city as we raise up these full throttle, hold nothing back followers of Christ. We call them mathetes, the original ancient Greek word. As we send out these mathetes in the city, what could happen with the presence of God surging through the city? So I don't know, man. I mean, South Florida, is a, it's a tough place. It's a dark place. And, and look at the foundation we're working with. Do you know, statistically, 3 to 4% of South Florida, the population of South Florida, are committed Christ followers. That's how small the foundation is we're building on. But the foundation's not what matters. It's who's with us. That matters. It's Jehovah Sabaoth. It's the Lord of the armies of heaven. It's the same God that led his people out of Egypt. The same God that parted Red Seas and brought Egypt to his knees. He's saying, I'm with you. That's all that matters. And so, church, it's time to get to work. You say, what does that mean? How do we get to work? We have to, we have to look and answer the question that Haggai asks. We've got to say, we've got to consider our ways, and here's what we've got to decide. What is our priority? What's our priority? Is it our houses or is it his house? Is it our kingdoms or is it his kingdom? Is it advancing our own personal success or is it advancing the presence of God throughout the city? We've got to confront ourselves and ask ourselves what is our priority and stop and consider our ways because he's calling us to get to work. This time last year, We launched a vision initiative. This is when we started saying we want to see South Florida transformed in our generation by the power of the gospel. We launched this vision series called Extravagant because we're an extravagantly loved people called to extravagantly love our city. And so we launched that and we talked about, okay, what are these steps? And we we knew that we had to expand our kids' space because our kids and our students are our priority. 
to raise them up. Students, you are already missionaries in your context, filled with the presence of God sent out into your context as missionaries. Our kids and our students are our priorities. So we, we said, okay, well, that, that's going to be the first thing we do. We doubled our kids' space, and then we're saying, what's the next step? We envision seeing campuses dotting South Florida that are raising up and churning up more mathetes going out into the city to bring about transformation. And so we said a, a next milestone step for that is establishing this pilot campus, which we're rolling out in the next couple weeks, and then third step, somewhere down the road, establish a new hub site at a strategic location, a, a hub campus that's broadcasting to the other campuses. And so we set out on this initiative, this extravagant initiative. We said we want to show that, and we said we're going to have to be stretched. If this is going to happen, we're going to have to be stretched in every area, but we said specifically in this season, God is going to have to stretch us in one particular area the area of generosity. And here's what this did, church. It stretched us as your pastors and leaders. It stretched our conviction and commitment to our prophetic role in your life. Because talking about generosity was uncomfortable for some. There were some that were angry. They said, look, I come to church, I love Jesus, but if you, want to, if you start talking about money, I'm out. There are people that left the church. There's people that made phone calls, they're upset. There's even one person that wrote an anonymous note and put it in the offering box. And in this person's defense, I don't know who it is, but this person's defense, they wrote it as graciously as possible, but here's what they wrote. They said, can we stop talking about money and get back to talking about Jesus. And when I read that, my heart was heavy. Because for five weeks through that extravagant series, for five weeks, we had only looked at one type of scripture. We didn't really look in the Old Testament during that season. We didn't really look at most of the New Testament. We were just reading and studying the words of Jesus. And so it pushed our conviction as your leaders. Who are we here to please? Are we here to please man or please God? Who do we ultimately stand before? We ultimately stand before man or before God? Because here's the thing, we're not going to give you, church, just part of Jesus. Today is kind of like a line in the sand kind of moment because I want you to know we're going to give you all of Jesus from the Scripture. Let, let me tell you, like, what do you mean? J about 15% of everything Jesus said was about money or possessions. Let me read you some of the things Jesus said that we didn't talk about last year. Here, here's some of the, these are Jesus' statements. Jesus said, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus' words. Jesus said, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. Jesus said, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. That's what Jesus said. Church, here's what you can expect from your church. You will never get a redacted Jesus. Only the full Jesus. As we are choosing to run hard and say, no, we're going to be mathetes, this full throttle, hold nothing back from Jesus, you're going to hear us saying, here's what Jesus says about forgiving each other. Here's what Jesus says about marriage. Here's what Jesus says about relationships and, and about dating. Here's what Jesus says about friendships. Here's what Jesus says about serving. Here's what Jesus says about finances. We're, you're going to hear us talking about, no, we are surrendering everything to you, Jesus. You are Lord. You're Lord over my checkbook and my bank account and over my goals and my dreams and my relationships and my friends. You are Lord over everything. That's what you are going to hear from your church. And so that brings us to our question. We hear, what this, we hear what God's word is saying and God's word is confronting all of us today asking a very simple question. Where are your priorities? Where are my priorities? Is it living in a paneled house? Or is it building God's house? And sending the presence of God into our city and getting to be a part of something historic. We have to ask, what will our extravagance be? In A.D. 125, the generation immediately after the apostles and those who had been with Jesus face to face, that second generation, one of the most famous voices of that generation was a book by the name of The Shepherd of Hermas. And in that book, he's addressing what does it look like to follow Christ. And he talks about money and possessions. And here's what he says, Christians, you want to know how to handle money and possessions? And he puts it like this. I thought this was so interesting. This is what our ancient Christian fathers talked about and thought about, fathers and mothers. He said, if you want to know what to do with your finances? He said, buy souls. Spend your money on souls. And he says, this Lavish expenditure is beautiful and joyous. It does not bring grief or fear, but joy. So do not practice the extravagance of outsiders, for it is unprofitable to you, the servants of God. But do practice your own extravagance in which you can rejoice. He said, Christians... He says, you and I are going to have a different type of extravagance. We're going to look different than the rest of the world. Why? Because we know that it's not about this life here. Our best life is to come in heaven. We know this life is just a blink of an eye, and we're going to spend eternity in heaven. And so invest in what will matter a billion years from now. Invest in souls. This time last year, we took a step, and so many of us together, so many of your families, like, like Rebecca and I and our whole staff and all of our elders and our leadership, we took a step and we said, God, stretch us to where we've never been before in the area of generosity. And we even did something that we'd never done before as a church. We actually had commitment cards so we could plan accordingly, and we all kind of worked through that commitment and said, okay, this is what we're going to do, and hundreds of us did that together. And over the last year, the stories that have surfaced, I mean, when you take a step of faith like that, you're going on an adventure with God and watching how he is going to provide and prove he's the provider in your life. 
And you're going on a faith journey with him and watching just the stories coming back of people who, are, who have said, man, you wouldn't believe what God did. And I learned how he is the provider in my life. And man, there's just ways, unexpected ways he showed up and he blessed. And, and man, it was just an incredible journey. So many of those stories. But I want to share with you two today. I want you to see two. Two of just of people from our church. Two of us just sharing their journey. And the thing I love about these two stories is both of them had to see what others might not have seen. Both of them had to take a step of faith. They had to take a faith journey where they're saying, God, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I want to get in on the ground level and I'm putting my faith in you. Because, you know, when it comes to an investment like Henry Lum, that's a risk. In business, it's a risk. With God, it's faith of knowing who's in control. Check out these two stories. Yeah, when the extravagant uh, series came along, we sat down uh, at the time and said, you know, we've got an abundance that we can give. So uh, she prayed, I prayed, we decided, we prayed together. yeah, prayed together. Uh, let's bring each other's numbers back and see how close we are. And when we came together, it was the exact same number. And shortly after that pledge, Don got a, uh, laid off. His company did a massive layoff. And I lost my job. And it happened around the same time in April. And so we thought, okay, what do we do now? Going all in for us was so much more than just giving of our finances. It was being expectant of what God was gonna do. It was about giving and but also like stretching our, our faith in how we were going to approach that giving. For us, that conversation was exciting and it was fun and it was a little scary and looked over our extravagant sheet of where what we thought we could give and what that little extra was and we honestly didn't have it to give, but we were excited for what God was going to do through it, and we've just believed He was going to provide it. For six months, uh, we had no jobs, and it was tough. Uh, we didn't know where income was going to come from, how we were going to make it. So we were like thinking, do we start thinking about selling the house? Where do we go? What will we do? In the flesh, there's weakness. It's like we only have so much, we can't make the bills, but we're still going to tithe. That was mind-blowing, not having enough to cover the bills, but we're still going to tithe. That didn't make sense, but it made sense overall because somehow it was, it was replaced in our moment of need constantly. All through that time, we never missed a house payment, never missed a car payment. We had food on the table. Uh, in October, I did get a new job. Giving for us is we don't have a set income, so it wasn't like we were looking at backing into um, how to make uh, you know the finances work. It was a, it was a stretching, and it was kind of finding a deeper purpose. It's having the faith of what we can't see that God will fulfill what He said He would. We give like when He gives us that nudge in our heart, and then we get to kind of see what He's doing with it, and it's always so much more than we could have ever dreamed, really, you know? And it's, 
It makes me emotional. Like it's so incredible that you just want like to do it more and more and more, you know. There's other factories around here that are producing products and producing services and things like that. And what we're producing here is math to taste. The more we can fuel the fire, invest more into it, just opens the door for to bring in more math to taste, to create more math to taste. And so those math to taste create more math to taste and then it starts to grow exponentially. God doesn't need our money and that's, you know, uh, he could do anything, but uh, the condition of the heart changes when you start helping other people. And the only thing you can take to heaven is other people. There's no limitation to how many people we can impact. Just one more. One more. love how Don puts it right there at the end. He says, the only thing you can take to heaven is people. That's it. That's it. It's, it's imagining. What might God be doing? Why is he stirring all these churches that are coming together saying, we want to see something historic happen in our city that we love, filled with people that we know and love filled with people like our children, our brothers and sisters, our cousins, aunts and uncles, our parents, our friends, our, our co-workers, our neighbors. It's filled with people we know and love. What could happen if a mighty historic work of God swept through this city and the lost were found, the pain was healed, the broken was restored? What could it look like if a raging fire in South Florida was raging so much that sparks were flying to other parts of the world. What could happen? And I think God's saying, I'm on the move. I'm inviting you in to be a part of it. This time last year, several of you did what um, Rebecca and I did, and you filled out a commitment card. Look something like this. There's some right there in your seat backs in front of you, and, and some of you filled this out, and some of you did like what we did. You said, look, I'm going to stretch myself. Lord, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I'm going to stretch myself in faith. And you went on that adventure with God. God has been using that. It's already bearing fruit. It's incredible for what, what we get to be a part of. Others of you might look at that commitment card that's in that seat back in front of you. Maybe you grab it and pull it out. And others of you might say, you know what? I did fill this out this time last year. But when I thought about it, this is the first time I ever did it. And, and when I think back on what I did, it was very conservative. But I want to have more faith. And God's stirring that in me because I want to be a part of what he's doing. I want to get in on the ground level. And so some of you, maybe you take this home and you begin praying about it, what, how God's stretching you. There's a, there's a website at the bottom. You can actually fill it out online also. And maybe you just take this with you and start praying about it. Others of you might say, look, I, I, wasn't, um, I was here last year, but I, I just wasn't, didn't fill it out. I wasn't ready or I, I, I just, my heart wasn't in the right place or for one reason or another, I never filled out a commitment card, but I want to be a part of it. This is my church. And this vision is not just the church of, it's not just the vision of my church, it's the vision on my life. And so I'm in. And so maybe some of you take this home today, this weekend, and you start praying about it. But maybe others of you say, look, I just got here. I, have, I wasn't even here this time last year, but this is my church. I'm a part of this vision. This vision includes me. I'm one of those mathetes that are going out and making more mathetes. I want to be a part. I want to do whatever it takes. I know where my priorities lie. It's seeing the presence of God spread through this city that he's planted me in. And so some of you may take this home and say, look, I'm in. I'm in. Why are we doing this? This last 
Yet last Sunday, we stood out back in a tent and 31 people got baptized last Sunday. And there was uh, so many incredible stories, so many stories that I'll, I'll, I'll probably always remember, but one in particular I'll never forget. Is there's this woman that she was standing over here to the right, and the baptism was over here, and her two children were getting baptized. Older elementary school. And we have classes for those kids so they can understand before, as they're making that decision with their parents, they can understand what baptism is. They're declaring, I'm, I'm putting my faith in Jesus through that. They're publicly declaring that. And this woman watched as, as her young son went in, got baptized. He came back down the stairs, ran to his mom. She was holding him and, and watching as people were cheering as her, her daughter was being baptized. And her, and her daughter came down the stairs to her as well. But the entire time, the woman wasn't even looking at her kids. She was simply looking up to heaven, tears streaming down her face. And she was just simply saying over and over, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Because her lambs were lost sheep that were brought to the Good Shepherd. That's what we're doing, church. Your friends and your coworker, there's there's someone's kids that someone's grandkids have been prayed for for years. Don't we want to be a part, God's instrument, of seeing them? come to salvation? Don't we want the privilege of entering in in faith and seeing the lost found? Seeing this city transformed? Let's take that step of faith together as a church. May when Jesus one day returns, may he find this church, a church that every last one of us was stirred up where we knew what our priorities were, and we, were, we got to work with no fear, no hesitation, because we knew who went with us. May he be pleased with what he finds with our church. Some of you are here today, and you are that lost sheep. And today's the day where you'll be found. It's the day, this is the step that you need to take today. Maybe some of you might even be saying, you might be watching online saying, look, I know I, I've got a parent that's been praying for me, a grandparent, a friend, a sibling that's been praying for you. And today's the day. Today's the day to be found. Jesus so extravagantly loved you. God himself came down in the flesh, died on a cross to pay for your sins, rose again from the dead so that you could have your sins washed away and spend eternity in heaven. Put your faith in Jesus today. I want to lead you in a prayer. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If that's you, just simply right there in your seat. I want to lead you in a prayer. If you want to put your faith in Jesus today, I want to lead you in this simple prayer. Repeat these words in your heart. You don't even need to say them out loud. Just repeat them in your heart to God. Just say, Jesus, thank you for extravagantly loving me. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for rising again from the dead. I surrender my life to you. It's yours. In Jesus' name, amen. If that was your prayer just then, we want to celebrate that with you. If you're watching online, there's a place you can click and say, yes, that was me. We just want to pray for you and celebrate with you. If you're here and you prayed that prayer, there's a a connection card you can tear off, fill out your information, and just check the box that says, I put my faith in Jesus for the first time.
first time. We just want to let you know that we're behind you and we're celebrating with you and let you know what the next steps are. Church, we're going to close a little differently today. Uh, the band in just a moment is going to sing a song over you and we're going to stay in a moment of reflection and just a moment of decision and commitment and surrender and just laying ourselves before God quietly saying, God, my everything I have is yours. Let him reveal to you your priorities and just make that commitment. Some of you may even grab that commitment card out from in front of you and hold that before God and say, God, what do you want for me to do? You are my priority today. What, can we stay in this moment of just commitment and surrender together as we close? Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.